Today's scripture reading is found in Matthew 19, 16 through 29. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these things I have kept, the young man answered. What do I still lack? Jesus answered. If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or fields, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Well, the story of the rich young ruler, the story that Courtney just read for us, is, of course, a very familiar story. Chances are you've heard this story more than once. Perhaps, like me, you have vague childhood memories of hearing this story for the first time in Sunday school. You remember trying to, hard to listen to the blue-haired lady tell the story as she set the flannel graph characters into place. Perhaps you heard the faint call of Jesus on your life at a junior high retreat, where the speaker shared the story and you labored in vain not to let your thoughts drift to the pretty blonde girl sitting two rows over. Perhaps over your decades-long journey with Christ, this is just one more sermon in a string of countless sermons that you have heard about this young man. Or perhaps, perhaps you're new to the faith. And this is the very first time that you're hearing this familiar story. Well, if that's you, I want to encourage you this morning. You are at a distinct advantage. You are at a distinct advantage over all of the more seasoned Christians sitting around you. You see, there is a danger to familiar stories. There's a danger to familiar stories, especially familiar stories with a timeless moral principle. You see, we can grow so accustomed to these stories that we grow numb 
to their message. We feel as if we know them inside out, as if there is nothing left for us to learn. We have gotten all we can get out of them, and this is just one more sermon we must endure before we can go home and enjoy our Sunday afternoon nap. I think this is especially true for those of us who grew up in the evangelical church. I think this is especially true for those of us who hold tightly to that moment that we asked Jesus into our heart. That moment when we invited him to be our personal Lord and Savior. We, we hold this memory like a bridge token in our pocket. Someday, hopefully very far off into the future, we will pull out that token brush off the lint and use it to cross over the Jordan and into eternal life. But what if there's more to the story? What if there's more to the story? What if our familiarity is blinding us to the faint call we first heard at that junior high retreat all those years ago? What if, what if this very morning we are ironically in the same position as this perplexed young man, full of questions and full of grief? What if there is more to the story than our familiarity can perceive? Well, I think it's entirely possible that there is and as we unpack this story this morning, I think that's what we're going to find. But before we do, let's pray and ask that the Lord bless our time in his word. Jesus, you are indeed our Lord and Savior. So we pray in this moment, come save us. Open our dull ears that we may hear your call. Open the eyes of our hardened hearts that we may see the hope of your calling and respond in faith and obedience. Yes, Lord. Yes and amen. Well, today's message is entitled The Only Way to Gain Eternal Life. And as we unpack this message, we're going to see three things. We're going to see that there is no good thing you can do. The only thing you can do is follow. And no one who follows will be disappointed. So for those of you who like outlines and like to take notes, there's your outline. There's no good thing you can do. The only thing you can do is follow. And no one who follows will be disappointed. First, there's no good thing you can do. Matthew paints a picture of a man who has it all together. He is young. He is rich. Luke's gospel tells us that he is powerful. He is some sort of ruler. Moreover, he's morally upright. This man is young, rich, powerful, and on top of it all, he's a good guy. He is the classic man that all the guys want to be and all the girls want to be with. If your daughter brought this young man home, you would start baking the wedding cake before he walked out the door. Yet, despite all of his seeming goodness, 
Something's wrong. Something is missing in this young man's life. So he comes to Jesus and he asks, he says, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why are you asking me about what's good? Why are you asking me about what's good? There is only one who is good. Jesus wastes no time in diagnosing the man's problem. What what good thing can you do? Only God is good. So the implication is nothing. There is no good thing you can do. Leaving no room for retort, Jesus immediately continues. But if you wish to enter life, well, just keep the commandments. To which the man, seemingly perplexed, replies, well, which ones? Now, at this point, it may seem reasonable to conclude that this young man is not as morally astute as he appears to be. As modern readers, it is easy for us to conclude, well, if you got to ask that question, there's your problem right there. It's easy for us to conclude that. But here's the thing. According to rabbinic calculations, there are 613 commandments in the Pentateuch alone. That is just the first five books of the Bible. 613 commands. Moreover, Jewish, re- Jewish religious leaders compiled two volumes of moral teaching called the Mishnah and the Talmud. And in doing so, they piled rules on top of rules and created rules for keeping the rules. And so this perplexed young man is quite reasonable in asking this question. He genuinely wants to know what good he must do to inherit eternal life. Because he's genuinely tried and he knows that something is still, well, missing. Jesus somewhat facetiously replied and said, well, you know, you should not commit murder, you should not commit adultery, you should not steal, you should not bear false witness on your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I say that Jesus was being facetious because obviously he, he, he wasn't offering justification for a works-based salvation. He was not trying to justify a works-based salvation. He has already established that no one but God is good. So then, what is Jesus doing? What is he trying to accomplish? He was simply trying to draw the man out. He was just trying to draw the man out. And here's the thing. He succeeded. You can almost hear the frustration in the man's voice as he replied, all these things I have kept. We're told in one of the other Gospels that he, all these things I have kept from my youth. What am I still lacking? And here's the thing. There's no reason to believe that he hadn't kept the commandments. He was a genuinely pious man. But this pious man, the man with it all, lacks one thing. One thing is missing, and he has no idea what it is. Maybe you're here this morning, and you have the same sense of lack. Maybe you're like this young man. You have it all together, all except for that one nagging question and its ever-elusive answer. Or, maybe you're like me. You can think of a 
thousand things that are wrong with you. And you often think to yourself, oh, if I could just get this right, and this right, and this right, oh, and this right, and that right, well then, if I can just get all that right, well, well then God's going to be pleased with me. Maybe that's you. Regardless of which type of person you are, well, the problem is the same. No one can get it all together. No one. No one is good. There is nothing you can do to be good. And this takes us to our second point this morning. The only thing you can do is follow. Answering his question, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go sell all your possessions and then give it all away to the poor. If you do that, you will have treasure in heaven. Oh, and one more thing, come follow me. In his response to the young man, Jesus shifts the discussion from goodness to completeness. The word here for complete is often translated as as perfect or mature throughout the New Testament. It denotes not merely an outward adherence to external rules. Again, Jesus is not preaching a gospel of works. Rather, it is a a sense of inner moral purity and love for God and others. It is uniquely tied to love for God and love for others. Moreover, we know from the greater context of the Gospels that, that this completeness is not a static state of flawless perfection. Rather, it is a dynamic state of being that is cultivated through a lifelong process of discipleship, a lifelong process of following the call of Jesus. Now, this young man is coming to God, and he, he wants to know what one good thing he, he must do to have eternal life. And Jesus, he shifts the discussion from goodness to completeness, from eternal life to the entirety of life. Again, Jesus says, if you wish to be complete, go and sell all your possessions and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Here Jesus offers the man three imperatives for the complete life. Sell, give, and follow. Sell, give, and follow. He he calls this man to completely disinvest himself entirely. He doesn't tell him to give his 10% tithe and his obligatory offering to, to the poor. As a moral Jewish man following the letter of the law, he's already doing those things. Jesus' call is far more radical than that. He calls him to completely disinvest himself, give absolutely everything away, and he saves the most radical imperative for last. Jesus said to the young man, come follow me. Come follow me. Jesus is moving this man from his narrow view of eternal life to the entirety of life. You know, when I read the Gospels, I see nothing short of a radical call for anyone who would dare 
to become a disciple. The, the phrase, follow me, appears in all four of the Gospels. And in every case, it denotes a radical reorientation of one's life, of one's priorities. The Gospels are not Aesop's fables. The Gospels are not the book of virtue. Those are moral tales for moral people looking to live a relatively moral life. The Gospels are far more radical than that. The Gospels are a call to the complete life, the perfect life. If you call yourself a Christian, you are a disciple, whether you like it or not. And to be a disciple is to hear and obey the radical call, come follow me. Come follow me. It is a shift from the narrow view of eternal life to the entirety of life. We examined Jesus' definition of eternal life in a sermon I preached a couple of months back. And that came from John 17, verse 3. Jesus is praying to the Father in heaven and And he says, this is eternal life. Only definition of eternal life that we have in the New Testament. This is eternal life. What? That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There it is. That's eternal life. We also know from John that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the life for this man as well for you and me. The call is not only the answer to the question, but the fulfillment of the answer. Tracking with me? The the call is, is not only the answer to the question, but the fulfillment of the answer. To follow Jesus is to live the eternal life. Not future, but present reality. To be a disciple is to hear and obey the radical call, come follow me. This call proved to be too much for this would-be disciple. And the text tells us that he went away grieving. Grieving. Now, I find it interesting that he went away grieving. The text doesn't say that he went away unconvinced. The text doesn't say that he went away unpersuaded. The text doesn't say that he went away more perplexed than he was when he first came to Jesus. The text just says that he went away grieving. Why? Why did he go away grieving? Because he was one who owned much property. In other words, because he understood the cost of discipleship, Right? Jesus asked him to sell it all, give it all away. He understood the cost of discipleship and he wasn't willing to make the sacrifice. He wasn't willing to do it. In the Sermon on the Mount, just a few chapters back, Jesus said this about money and devotion. He said, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot 
do it. It's impossible. Why did this young man go away grieving? Because he was met with the reality of Jesus' teaching and he got it. He got it. He understood what was at stake. He understood the cost of discipleship, but he wasn't willing to make the sacrifice. So he walked away. He went away grieving because, because now he knew what was missing. He finally knew what was missing. And he knew that as long as he held on to his earthly treasures, that void would remain in him forever. Upon the young man's exit from the narrative, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, Truly I say to you, it is hard, hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a sewing needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Here, Jesus provides his disciples with this ridiculous and somewhat cartoonish picture of a camel being squeezed through the eye of a sewing needle. Now, some of you may have heard this impossible feat explained away by tale of a a gate in the city of Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle. Uh, Being a very small gate, camels would supposedly have to drop to their knees and shuffle along with some difficulty through this gate in order to enter the city. Sounds like a reasonable explanation. It certainly makes for more palatable application. There's only one problem with this explanation. This gate, if it ever existed, was not built until the Middle Ages. And it had absolutely no correlation to the story whatsoever Moreover, this explanation misses the point entirely. You see, we're told by Matthew that when the disciples heard this, well, they were very astonished. They were taken back. They were surprised. By the way, they're on their way to Jerusalem. I mean, the disciples have been with Jesus for like three years now, and they're still being surprised by his teaching. They were very astonished and said, then who can be saved. Who can be saved? See, the feat that Jesus described is every bit as ridiculous as the disciples imagined it to be. It is more than hard. It is impossible. It's absolutely impossible. When I was a kid, I took home ec, and I remember trying to get that thread through the needle. I couldn't do it, let alone a giant camel. Come on, it's impossible. Absolutely impossible. So the disciples wondered then who can be saved because they were still under the strong impression of the day that that these were precisely the type of people who would inherit the kingdom of heaven. He's young, he's rich, he's powerful, he's morally astute. He's the model image of a citizen of heaven. That was the thinking of the day. Oh, but Jesus comes in with the Sermon on the Mount and he turns everything on end, doesn't he? Do you remember what he said in the Sermon on the Mount in the very beginning? Blessed are the young. Blessed are the rich. Blessed are the powerful. Blessed are the morally astute. Is that what Jesus says? No. 
It's not what he says. What does he say? Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed all those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because they're the ones who are going to be satisfied. Not the rule keepers. Not the pretentiously pompous people. It's those who truly, from their heart of hearts, hunger and thirst for righteousness. This young man may be rich, powerful, and morally astute, but he is spiritually impoverished. As one commentator says, uh, the young man's request for some good thing to do has brought him face to face with goodness at a level which will prove far too high for him. Far too high for him. I think this young man might be the saddest character in all of the Bible. Here's why. Throughout the Gospels, there are countless characters who cannot see and therefore cannot perceive. In other words, they just don't get it. But this man can see. This man does get it. And still, still he rejects it. He can't bring himself to lay down his earthly treasures so, so, so he can lay hold of, of something of far greater value. And what is that thing of greater value? Well, I can tell you, it is not, most certainly not, a mansion in glory with a beautiful view overlooking the glassy sea. It's not. I'm sorry, believer. If that is your view of heaven and eternity, your view of heaven and eternity is far too small. Far too small. What is eternal life? It is the present reality of Jesus Christ in our lives in the here and now and the then to come. Eternal life is the present reality of Jesus Christ in our lives in the here and now and the then to come. Sadly, sadly, I think many of us are like this young man. We're like this man and we really don't want to hear what Jesus has to say. Listen, Pick a gospel and you work your way through it over this next month. It is radical. It's disturbing. Jesus came in and he shook up the whole of Jewish society and that has echoed through this world over the centuries. Do you think you can approach it and not have your heart rocked? Not see something that you don't have to work on? Not see something that, that is terribly amiss in your own life? Well, the Gospels are radical. And sadly, many of us, were like this young man. We don't want to hear what Jesus has to say. Somewhat ironically, we're in the same position as him, perplexed and full of grief. Why? Because he went to the Lord wanting to know what good thing to do. We were met with goodness itself. And we didn't like the answer. We didn't like the answer. Well, I, I just, 
I just want the token to get over the bridge, we say. Jesus says, "Mm, no. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. Come follow me. Come follow me. Remember, Jesus said, he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. What is eternal life? It is the present reality of Jesus Christ in our lives, in the here and now, and the then to come. It is relationship. You know what? It's relationship more than in the sense of like, oh, the personal Jesus. I have a personal relationship with Jesus. It's more than that. Jesus is calling him to be a disciple. Follow him with the other disciples. It's also a call to community. It's a call to to be with others and walk through the trials of life and faith with others as we follow along with our Savior. Now, it is possible to extrapolate the principle of this passage and apply it to another area of life. Okay, so in other words, there might be another treasure that we harbor in our hearts that competes for our devotion, okay? Um, uh, Maybe it's our our kids or our career or our education, right? As as my friend Andy is fond of saying, if you want to know what your idols are, try killing them. That's not to suggest that you should try to kill your kids, okay? Don't, Don't do that. It's a metaphor, people, okay? But we can extrapolate the principle and apply it to other areas of our lives. And that's an acceptable use of the passage. That's fine. You can do that. But but here's the thing. As the author of this gospel, Matthew is uniquely concerned about the unique temptation of money. There are at least 16 references to wealth in this gospel. In chapter 5, Jesus says you cannot serve both money and God. Here in chapter 19, the man is asked to choose between his money and God. And in just a few chapters from now, Judas, very sadly, will betray Jesus for the measly sum of 30 pieces of silver. In modern terms, he sold Jesus out for a lousy 7,500 bucks. In other words, he sold Jesus out for a rusted old Honda Civic that he bought off of Craigslist. What a worthless trade that was. Money is a problem. It is a problem. Money is a problem for people who have it. Money is a huge problem for people who have it. And here's the thing. You don't have to have a lot of it. You really don't. All you need is enough to keep yourself comfortable and independent. Enough to pay the bills. Enough to buy some toys. A boat. An unnecessary car or two. An audaciously large home, a collection of priceless beanie babies. Listen, you might not consider yourself rich, but it doesn't take much to die to Christ and live to your earthly treasures. Catch that? It does not take much to die to Christ and live to your earthly treasures. 
Money is a huge problem for people who have it. Here's the thing. Money is also a huge problem for the people who don't have it. It's a huge problem. You see, you might not have enough money to live comfortably and independently. You might not have enough money for the boat, the house, and the Beanie Babies. But deep inside your heart of hearts, you covet what your neighbor has. You stew in your anger and disgust at their audacious lifestyle because in your heart of hearts, you would gladly trade places with them. You would take the Beanie Babies in a heartbeat. Money is a problem for the rich and the poor alike. This is why Proverbs wisely states, give me neither poverty nor riches, Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. The love of money is a deceptive snare that can easily entangle rich and poor alike. Money is a unique temptation that can compete for the allegiance of our heart and pull you away from the present source of eternal life. Money will destroy your life if you do not guard your heart. And the wise words of the immortal gangster rapper Ice Cube, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. Money is a problem it can lead you away from the Lord, give you a false sense of security, and entirely shipwreck your life for something that is passing. Again, in Matthew, Jesus said, you know, do not build up your treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal, but it'll build up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt, thieves do not break in and steal. It's cliche, I've heard it in a thousand sermons, but you're never going to see a U-Haul behind a hearse. You can't take it with you. So it is impossible for this rich man to be saved. So then the disciples want to know, well, if he can't be saved, then who can be saved? Looking at them, they said that Jesus, looking at them, Jesus said, listen, he says, with, with people, this is impossible. But with God, well, with God, all things are possible. As we have already seen, there is no good thing that we can do. But God, in the power of his goodness, can take us, rich and poor alike, and squeeze us right through the needle's eye and into his eternal presence. There is no good thing you can do. The only thing you can do is follow. And our third point this morning, no one who follows will be disappointed. Upon hearing this, Peter turns to Jesus and he says, man, we have left everything to follow you. We have left everything to follow you. What then will be le there left for us? Now, commentators love to debate and speculate about Peter's motives in asking this question. Was he, you know, just trying to posture and show how pious 
of a follower he was. Personally, I like to let Peter be Peter. I like to think the best of Peter and assume that he is sincerely shocked by what he just heard and is just looking for a little assurance. Jesus replies with a promise to the disciples, but then a promise to all disciples in all places at all times, including you and me. Jesus replies to Peter and he says, Truly I say to you that you, ha- you who have followed me, everyone who has left house or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or farms for my sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Earlier in our service, um, Courtney shared a a quote from Elizabeth Elliot. I'm going to read that quote to you again. Quote is, I have one desire now, to live a life of reckless abandon for the Lord, putting putting all my energy and strength into it. Now, as part of our discipleship process, Courtney sent me her exhortation earlier in the week, asked me what I thought of it. And when I saw this quote, which I was not familiar with, I had never read it or heard it before, it immediately brought to mind a very famous quote from Elizabeth Elliot's husband, Jim Elliot. As Courtney mentioned in her comment, Jim Elliot was a missionary who was trying to reach an unreached and very violent people group in Ecuador. And Jim Elliott, along with Nate Saint, had made contact with them several times by flying over top of their community. And when they finally decided to establish personal contact, that tribe killed both men. And so when I read a quote from Jim Elliott that says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Because he gave his life so freely, I'm going to listen to that quote. I'm going to give a little bit more authority to that quote. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, here's the interesting thing about the story. I I find this absolutely fascinating. Nate Saint's wife, along with some of the other missionaries, they decided they were going to go back to Ecuador. And they were going to continue to try to reach this people group. They successfully established peaceful contact with them. And this is the most amazing part to me. Nate, or sorry, um, Jim Elliott's son. No, I'm sorry, Nate Saint's son. Nate Saint's son. He ultimately was baptized by one of the men who killed his father. God wastes nothing. Every dark moment in following him in faith and obedience, he will redeem. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You will never regret in heaven the days that you spent walking with Jesus on earth. You will never regret in heaven the days you spent walking with Jesus on earth. 
What is eternal life? It is being present with Jesus in the here and now and the then to come. Amen? Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the power of your word. We thank you for how it humbles us and brings us into a place that we can receive the call that you have for us. Lord, I just pray that you would make us tender to that call this week. That echoes of your word would ring out in our ears and our hearts over the hours and days that stretch out before us. May we hear the call to follow and may we take it up in faith and obedience. In your name, amen.